morning. Please join me in standing in reverence for the reading of the Word. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. As you're seating, uh, let's pray. Father, dear Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come to a, uh, a challenging passage, uh, at least challenging to uh, maybe understand. Um, Father, may give us grace to, to hear, uh, to, to understand, but, but not just to understand, but give us the grace uh, to not miss the warning in the midst of trying to understand the warning. Um, Father, we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, I don't know about you, but the first words that come to my mind is, let the fun begin. I don't know who assigned me this passage, um, but uh, I'm excited to preach it. It was me who assigned me this passage, but I should have given this one to Russ or Jeff or someone else. So I would encourage you to uh, buckle your seatbelt. Here's our challenge for the day. It's to not lose the forest for the trees. The trees are this, in this situation, in my estimation. A mental grasping of what in the world he means in this passage. The forest is the warning or the danger to us. That it could become just purely a mental exercise in trying to grasp what he's saying and miss the warning in the midst of it. So, yes, we do need to do both. We need to, do need to do mental work so that we can understand the weight and the gravitas of the warning, but we can't do that and miss the warning. So with that said, let me give you this, the big point for today. But i got to walk you to that big point really quick. The broad context of Hebrews is this, the supremacy of Christ as encouragement to persevere in the faith. So the supremacy of Christ, the supremeness, the greatness of Christ and His salvation over and above everything else, that as it relates to the perseverance of the saints... That is a life firmly rooted in the supremacy of Christ. Now hopefully, in the midst here, you've picked up on this grand theme as well. That you will only persevere if you advance in the faith. That, let me put it a different way. Perseverance requires faith advancement. Perseverance requires faith advancement. It was true for Jesus, it's true for us. There is no neutral. 
you're either growing further up and further in or further out and further away. Those are the options. There is no neutral. It's forward or reverse. So if you're not in forward, then you are going backwards. If you are not moving closer, you are falling away. If you don't advance, you will fall away. Let me put it in more uncomfortable terms for you. If you don't advance in faith, you will lose your salvation. All right, now that I've got hopefully everyone's attention, hopefully you hang on to each word that I say. This is really crucial. Don't listen like we listen to, to Twitter and Facebook and just little, little bits and pieces and miss the, the important words here and there. And if you're still confused when you're done, just email Pastor Jeff, okay? The spirit of the age for us right now is always reacting, never enacting. All right, so let me set this up. It's, it's always reacting, never enacting. Always responding, always being tail whipped by what's going on around us and inside of us, kind of a, a pacifistic approach to life. We feel a certain way, and so we get tail whipped. We say something we shouldn't, or we don't do something that we should, or someone says something we don't like, and, and we just start responding in our heads. Or life circumstances hit us every day, and those things rule how we approach even the Scriptures. We talked about this last week. You, you can't go to the Scriptures to serve your emotions or to serve your circumstances. Certainly, there are times where it's okay to go, wow, I'm struggling with this. I need to go study the Scriptures as it relates to that. But if that's your only diet, then who's in the driver's seat? Is the Scriptures in the driver's seat, or is your circumstances and your emotions and so on in the driver's seat? You're just being tail whipped by those items. You're being controlled and ruled by those things. Yes, God is sovereign over those, and so there's a measure of which he's still in control of even that, but what do you have in the driver's seat? Are you enacting or are you just always reacting? It's like my son the other night at the, or the other day at the breakfast table, grumpy as I'll get out, and I told him, you just took the keys from God and gave them to your emotions. You're being tail whipped by your emotions. If all we spend our time doing is responding to life, responding to our emotions, etc., then who's in the driver's seat? It's not the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, yes, in an ultimate sense, He is. But instead, it's our whims and the fragile world around us. But what, what's happening, this kind of big picture being painted for us in Hebrews, is that, uh, to use a, a common phrase, the greatest defense is a solid offense. The greatest defense is a solid offense. I mean, think about it, just in, in your Christian life, how much of your following of the Lord can you say is truly you being on the offense? Is you enacting the next step? Is you going after it harder today? Is you studying to know the Lord more today? And how much of it is driven by just kind of letting life happen and just responding to it? The primary way we're going to persevere is not being on the defense, not 
uh, just simply responding. It's not by just going to the Bible when we need to feel better. It's not just going to the Bible to figure out how to deal with this hard situation. But instead, it's by advancing in the Christian life. It's by actively, to use Paul's words, running the race, fighting hard, learning the next passage of Scripture, the next doctrine. It's by starting our own fires instead of trying to put out Satan's. And what we learned today is if you don't advance, you will fall away. That's what's at stake. It's by actively running the race. Listen, the warning of falling away here is given to all, and in the context particularly, to the milk drinkers. You know, General Patton said, General Patton was known for always advancing, always pressing the attack. And he said this, I keep pressing the attack, quote, because I don't like paying for the same real estate twice. And that's where some of you are right now. You keep having to pay for the same real estate over and over and over again because you won't take your mouth off the bottle and grab a hold of a knife and a fork. You men, particularly as you lead your families, stop paying for the same real estate over and over and over again. Pick up a knife and a fork. Put in your dentures and chew. This is theological maximalism. This is a distinction for us as a church. As you take more acreage around the elemental principles, the elemental, elemental principles, or elementary principles rather, those elementary, those basic ideas become shored up. They become more secured as you take the next acre, they become more protected, more buffered. If you do any streaming, you know how important buffering is, right? You miss out on the rest of your show, or you, miss, you have a nice instant potty break, right? Because it's buffering. As you take more acreage around the elementary principles, the elementary principles are shored up. Advancing is the only way to... Sh- to be sure of salvation and endure to the end. Now, why do we know this to be true? Well, at least Hebrews tells us this. What do you think he means by striving? Is it striving to just sit there? What's he say? Striving that you may enter this rest. It implies advancement. In the immediate context, just last Sunday, in the verses we learned there, moving on from the elementary principles, moving on from milk to meat, those explicitly claim advancement, increase in faith. And if that hasn't convinced you, he says, by now, some of you ought to be what? Teachers. I don't know if you know this, but moving on from a student to being able to teach it means advancement. It means an increase. So you have to have that in the back of your mind as we come into this warning. It's not just, it's not just maintain faith, but it's a growth in faith, or you will fall away. 
Again, the admonishment in this letter in a, as a whole is not just get your account, your faith account to zero, but to start making big deposits. The, the numbers should be growing. Now, the urgent reason for growth in the faith, I've already said this, but let me say it explicitly more clearly. The urgent reason for growth in the faith is the real danger of apostasy. It's the real danger of falling away. Or to put it in a term or a phrase we probably are rather uncomfortable with, with losing your salvation. I know this is an an uncomfortable topic, particularly for two groups of people. Let me speak to you for a moment. First of all, the Baptists that grew up in a once-saved, always-saved church. What's this about apostasy? There can't be apostasy. I don't have to worry about losing my salvation. What do you mean I can lose my salvation? You're probably a little uncomfortable right now. Maybe your seat is getting a little warm. Your chest is maybe a little tight. That's good. I'm just going to let you sit there for a hot minute. I'm okay with you being a little anxious. And then number two, those of you who aren't actually redeemed but think you are, this is going to make you real uncomfortable. Because what you've been holding on to is just a token or a get out of free jail card instead of a real life repentance and faith relationship with the Lord. A real true confession that you're holding fast to. Listen, you get uncomfortable anytime someone says you are failing at any of God's laws, and you do so because you haven't actually repented of your sin and found true forgiveness for it through the Lord Jesus Christ. So instead, every time someone keeps shooting an arrow into your false salvation, you keep plugging it with self-justification and likely bitterness. I am, too, here okay with you being bothered for the moment. Now, to understand this passage, we have to ask three questions. Every commentary, virtually every commentary I read, virtually every exposition I listened to or read, ask these same three questions. I'm going to ask these, they're going to serve my, for my first three points as well. But I'll go ahead and give those to you right now so you know where we're going. The first one is this. If you're going to understand this passage, you need to understand this first question. Who are the recipients of this warning? Who's receiving the warning? Who's the warning to? Two, what's the nature? What's the nature, kind of the core characteristics of this warning? And three, what's the consequence for failing to heed the warning? So who's the recipients? Who are the recipients? What's the nature? What's the consequence for failing to heed? First question, who are the recipients of this warning? Let's go to chapter 6, verse 4 through 6a. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. 
Now, if you understand anything about language, there's, there's five participles here that are describing a person, a group of people. Those who've been enlightened, those who've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness, the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Who are those people? That's the question. Those are the recipients of this warning, and who are those people? And really, the crux of that question is, is, are those redeemed people? Those five participles, are that, is that describing a redeemed people? These people with these great privileges, are those redeemed? Or are those people who just look redeemed? Now, out front, I want to say, I think there's two views that you can hold in, in understanding this passage, both within orthodoxy and both even within Reformed orthodoxy. I think you can hold either view, and matter of fact, you can hold either view and still be a member here. Look at that. We all don't have to agree on everything. One of us is right and one of us is wrong, all right? So it'd be fun to have good discussion and still be friends. You can still have table fellowship if you're on either side of these camps. What my encouragement would be is don't just pick the one because it's more comfortable. Okay? The first view is that these are people who represent a Christian externally, but it doesn't represent an actual believer. So therefore, the person who, quote unquote, if you can't see my air quotes. The person who falls away doesn't fall away from actually being a Christian, but falls away from looking like a Christian. A second view, that these are people who represent truly redeemed people. So the person who falls away really does fall away from being an actual Christian. To put it in other terms, when you say fall away, you don't have to use air quotes. Hence the title of my sermon, Don't Lose Your Salvation. And I don't have to use air quotes. My view is the second view. I think these are real Christians, truly redeemed. Truly believers who truly fall away. Now, again, if you're not uncomfortable yet, I'm sure you're uncomfortable now. And I think to understand this, the first thing we have to do is to read Hebrews, I'm going to use a big term here, synoptically. Which means to take the whole picture of Hebrews here into account. Now you got to remember, this is a pastoral letter written to a people. It was meant to be understood as one piece of literature, which is part of the danger of just preaching thought for thought or verse by verse or, or word for word. So if you read, though, the other warning passages, which is what we're going to do very quickly, we're going to take in the other warning passages in one kind of big sweep. I think you'll see all of these warnings are addressed to believers, you, I would encourage you to go read these specific contexts later 
Hebrews 2, he tells us, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In Hebrews 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to what? Fall away from the living God. Hebrews 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hebrews 12, notice I did purposely skip over the passage we're in. Hebrews 12, though, see that, uh, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Now, in all of these passages, no one debates who the recipients are. They're truly redeemed believers. So those who debate, who hold to view number one, that these are, in this passage, are unbelievers that look like believers, I haven't found anyone that holds that view that doesn't also believe that the rest of these are believers. And all of these, so no one debates who these recipients are, the truly redeemed believers. He's not been talking to fake Christians, and he's not going to talk to fake Christians in Hebrews 10 and 12. He's been talking to believers. So I think if you don't read this passage that we're in today as believers, then I think you're failing to read the book synoptically. You're failing to take in the whole picture. Again, he's teaching us a theology here by the use of this whole book. Now, let's just look at chapter 5 and chapter 6. Notice yet last week, the writer begins with you when he is talking about his, the readers and getting on them for being lazy and dull. So you, there's no doubt in the lazy, dull context and the milk, meat context, there's no debate. Those are believers, when he says, let us go on to maturity, what does that assume? It assumes that you were actually a Christian. You can't go on to maturity unless you're first an immature Christian. So the status of those moving on to maturity includes legitimacy of their salvation. And then he warns those people that they could fall away. That's what he's doing. He's saying, you meat eaters, don't slip back into drinking that bottle. You milk drinkers, if you don't advance, both of you groups, you're going to fall away from salvation. That's what's at stake. Again, the most natural reading is to conclude that these are believers. It was believers in all the other warning passages I believe it's the same here. Spurgeon says this, For a child reading this passage would say, 
that the persons intended by it must be Christians. He goes on, if the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than the terms used here. This is right after Spurgeon gives uh, respect to all of the uh, theologians that he otherwise, dis- uh, otherwise agrees with on like everything else. Like John Owen. John Owen holds an opposing the, the first view here. And Spurgeon's like, I-, I love you, John, but you're wrong. That's basically how he says it. So looking at the, the immediate context, again, that, let's, I, I think another example from this passage particularly uh, that I think seals the deal that these are believers is the phrase partakers of the Holy Spirit. Having the Spirit is a sign of what it means to be a Christian. Now, the word partakers, in the Greek, the same word that's used for lives on milk, the the lives on right there, is the same word used for partakers. And when it's used in lives on milk, no one debates whether or not the milk drinker is an actual believer. Why would Paul continue using that same word just a verse or two later? When he's saying partaker, to mean just, he's kind of enjoyed some of the fruit of the Spirit, like enjoyed some of the benefits of the Spirit, but isn't actually a receiver of the Spirit. Now, I, I admittedly, I think reading these people as being fake Christians is the easier pill to swallow. That's the easier one for uh, that doesn't give us the most tension. Now, it doesn't mean I think you're necessarily cheating if you hold to that view, but you could be, and you probably are. It's the same audience, though, here as the rest of those admonished in Hebrews. Now, before we move on to this next question of what's the nature, we make one, one last comment and then a summary statement. Where is the judgment? This is important. Where is he making a judgment? What kind of judgment is he making of these people? See, in chapter 5, he's making the judgment of their maturity. You have immature Christians drinking milk. You have mature Christians that are eating meat. And he's saying, don't keep sucking on the bottle. Move on. Build the house. In chapter 6, He isn't making a judgment any longer. He's making a warning. So don't confuse judgment and warning. He made the judgment. You have immature people and mature people, and if they both don't advance, judgment done, now warning, you will fall away. He's not saying that some of them have fallen away. That's not what's happening here. Don't read that into the passage. I know it's easy, but don't read that into the passage. Rather, he is warning them about the consequences of falling away, even in the midst of having received participle 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. All these privileges. 
the danger, if you don't advance in those privileges, that you would fall away. So you have to keep these things. Here's my summary statement. You have to keep these two things in mind. The recipients of this warning about falling away from salvation are truly redeemed people. No need for air quotes. Hold that in one hand. In the other hand, he is not claiming that some have indeed fallen away. He's warning them. You got to keep both those there. Now question two. What's the nature of the warning? What's the nature of the warning? What's the basic features, if you will, of the warning? Listen, if you don't read this as truly redeemed recipients, then you have to take the nature of the warning as needing air quotes. That they will quote unquote fall away. You know, what I really mean by that is they're not actually Christians, they're just falling away from being fake Christians. But what's the nature of the warning? Again, I think we need to read this synoptically. We need to take in the other character of the other warnings. I mean, Hebrews are strung full of warnings. Hebrews 2, they're warned against drifting away. Hebrews 2, 3, they're warned against neglecting their salvation. Hebrews 3, they're warned against hardening their hearts unto salvation. Hebrews 3, again, they're warned to continue to hold fast to Christ. Hebrews 4, they're warned to labor to enter God's rest. Again, what do you think all of these examples have meant? A fake Christian? In verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 1, they're warned to become mature and a judgment's being made. In verse 6 of chapter 6, they're warned against falling away. Now again, here's the key. In none of these situations have the warned actually done what they are warned against. Even those who are drinking milk, if they don't move on from the milk, then bad things happen, namely falling away. They are urged to be diligent and to refrain from dullness so that they will continue to possess the promises. So they're urged to, to persevere in this, not to come back to it, not to be restored unto it, but to not fall from it. So here's the, 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 the $10 word for you, million dollar word, how much you want to put on it. The warnings are prospective. They're prospective, as opposed to retrospective. The warnings are prospective, meaning something likely to happen in the future, as opposed to something that has happened in the past. Here's what you need to hear. In these warnings... The event being warned against hasn't actually taken place, but there's a chance that it could. So in verse 6, he's not saying that any have actually fallen away, but he's saying that they could. No one has yet to fall away. 
but there is the prospect that it could happen. It's prospective, not retrospective. And indeed, there are warnings. Listen, don't, don't miss. This is where we get kind of that force for the trees thing I began with. They are meant to urge believers to do things so that they don't fall away. And by fall away, he means apostasy. He means a rejection of Jesus. An ultimate rejection of Christ. Listen, he's not writing primarily urging us to turn away from sin, but from unbelief in Jesus. That's where he's saying this goes to. So let me drill this in a little bit. He's not talking about earning salvation. We've got to, whenever, whenever we hear work hard or do things that God requires, we immediately go to, oh, that's legalistic and I'm earning my salvation. Stop that foolishness. Righteousness is required as an outworking of the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. And so what's happening here is he's talking about striving to walk out that righteousness. And he's saying if you don't walk it out, you will lose it. It's kind of like this. If you don't tend the garden, the thorns and thistles of unbelief will overtake it. That naturally happens. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to keep a garden, but you don't have to work to get weeds in there, right? Everybody follow me? They just kind of magically appear. If you don't go pluck them, they will overtake it. If you don't advance, your faith will fall away. You don't have to plant the weeds. Listen, here's the deal. Let me give you a phrase. Unchecked unbelief always leads to apostasy. Listen, I've seen this so many times in church. Unchecked unbelief. What I mean by that is unrepented. Unbelief always leads to apostasy. It gets there eventually. It may not look that way. Just a couple poor decisions here. Just, uh, I think I need a new church now, there. Unchecked unbelief always leads to apostasy. And in this warning, apostasy is clearly in view. When the author speaks later, he, he talks about trampling Jesus. God's Son under one's feet. He'll talk about that in chapter 10. He talks about re-crucifying Jesus in this context. It's putting weight on the idea of apostasy. Now again, let me remind you, they haven't done this yet. But he's warning them against it. So as we think about this unchecked unbelief, let me ask you a an application question here. Where does this begin practically? Listen, I, you need leave, I have said this many times in my years of ministry. You need to view every question, every decision in life particularly, as a life or death kind of question. Because it could just be the first question in a long stream of decisions where you wake up one day having denounced the name of Christ. So listen, that battle, if you wait to fight the battle when it gets to the really hard times, you're likely going to lose. But if you fight the battle here on the smaller items of unbelief, 
What are you doing? You're shoring up. You're buffering. Now, I know, I know that this is a scary reality. But it's a fear that some of us really need to embrace, and maybe even for the first time. This is why we as elders press you as a church so hard on every decision that you make. Big or small could be just the beginning. That's why when someone leaves our church for stupid reasons, we get really concerned. Because usually their unbelief is clearly on display and they can't see it and now they're running from it in order to hide around other people who have no clue about it either. It really is life or death. I mean, that's what's at stake here. Listen, if you, particularly for you, if you're in that category last week of those dull faces... The lazy faces. It's life or death. And I'm not going like, to scream at you to get you out. Oh, the Spirit's got to let that sink into your soul. It is life or death. Third question. What are the consequences for those who don't heed the warning? What are the consequences? Hebrews 6, 6 through 8. And then having, or, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So he's saying this is impossible, right? To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What are the consequences to not heed the warning? It is that they will fall away. It is that you and I will fall away. It's really that simple. It's the phrase we don't like, lose my salvation. It's really that simple. If you don't heed the warnings, those who fall away, according to Hebrews 2, will not escape God's judgment. Hebrews 3, if you don't heed the warnings, they shall never enter God's rest if you harden your heart. Hebrews 6, 4, if you don't heed the warnings, they cannot, you cannot be renewed again to repentance. Listen, don't soften that. That's what he's saying. If they fall away, the warning is this, only fire awaits. Hebrews 10, if you don't heed the warnings, there is no atonement or sacrifice for sins will avail for you. In other words, there is no escape. There is no get out of jail free card. Those who forsake Christ will be destroyed forever and abandon the only hope they have of forgiveness of sins. And he's telling us that those who profess faith that were truly following Christ, that then fall away, there is no second chance. 
And for some of us, that's what we need to hear today. There is no second chance for that. For you would be crucifying Christ once again. Now again, I know that is dreadful to hear. At least I hope it's dreadful to hear. And I know it's not popular in Christian circles today. But he is saying there is no hope of restoration. He means what he says. We don't have to dance circles around this to try and explain it away to say something different. If you fall away from faith, there is no hope of restoration to repentance. There's no caveat to that here. There is no sacrifice that can be offered for those who have once received Christ's atonement and then rejected Christ's atonement. Listen, to turn from faith is to say Christ's crucifixion isn't enough for me the first time it was applied to me. And that's why he's saying to get saved a second time is impossible because it would be crucifying Christ again. And that can't happen. Listen, that's why he gives this soils and crop and thorns example here. Think about it this way. If you were to invest, again, hopefully you've done some gardening or at least planted a plant in your house, and you get my point here. If you were to invest all of your time and resource, I'm talking every ounce that you had, into making a plot of land look beautiful and yield fruit and veggies, you cultivate it, you plant it, you water it, and all that ultimately comes up at the end of the day is thorns and thistles, you're going to mark that land for destruction and leave it to burn. There's nothing. That's why he gives this example. That's his point. Follow me here. If God were to invest the blood of his own son into a person's life, redeeming that person from the grave, and that person then were to reject Christ, God would not act to redeem that person again. He has made this promise. Why? Because it would be crucifying his son once again. And this is a promise from Almighty God. I think you should add that promise to your collection of Hobby Lobby signs. Or get a decal that says, no second chances for apostates. Or put that on your index card, on your bathroom mirror. Now listen, I'm being serious. Put that on an index card and put that on your mirror. There's no second chance if I turn from Jesus. Listen, this is a scary promise. Not all of God's promises are butterflies. If you're redeemed and you reject Jesus... There is no longer any hope for you whatsoever, only that judgment awaits. That is it. Listen, wake up in the morning. There is no second chance if I turn from Christ. Again, I know that's scary. It's supposed to be. That's the point. It's no false warning, there's no air quotes needed. 
He means it. Listen, we live in a world where we try to isolate ourselves from all fears, where we take drugs to deal with our fears. That's all anxiety meds are. Just because something is fearful doesn't mean it's bad or wrong or that it's impossible for God to enact. It's a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing. We should get t-shirts that say no second chances for apostates. Listen. That would be a great warning to each one of us each and every day. As you go to work, as you choose whether or not to read your Bible in the morning, as you choose whether or not to come to church, as you choose whether or not to submit to that emotion, as you choose whether or not to look at something that's righteous instead of something that's unrighteous, Listen, I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation in any one of those particular moments, but it could be the first moment and a string of moments. And that's the warning. Now, let me quote Spurgeon here. Hypothetical situations teach us of God's faithfulness. Hypothetical situations teach us of God's faithfulness. Let me tie a few strings together for you. Let me connect a few dots. Dot number one. These are real believers being warned that they could really fall away from salvation unto a real eternal judgment where there is really no second chance. That was one dot, by the way. One dot. Second dot, he's not claiming that this has indeed happened, but that it could. Dot number three, that God has promised to keep his redeemed. That God has promised, just as he's promised there is no second chance for the apostate, He has also promised that he will keep his redeemed. But one passage is saying we could lose our redemption. Other passages, and we'll get to those in a moment, seem to say we can't. So how do we have both? I'm going to try to explain this the same way I explained a number of weeks ago. In the question of could Jesus have sinned, and how that impacts his experience and relation to us when it comes to temptation. Could Jesus have sinned? Now, now if you're getting tired, you're going to have to turn up the processing speed. Here with me for just a second. By our nature, by our nature, yes, indeed, we could unbelieve our way all the way to not believing at all. By our own nature, our own strength, we could unbelieve our way all the way to rejecting Christ. That is how frail, feeble, weak, flaky, fragile our human state is. And some of us just live as though we're Superman or Batman if you prefer. 
Someone thought that was funny. Jesus understood this. That's why a few weeks ago, you need to connect this dot. Why is, why is Jesus begging of the Father, let this death pass from me, right? Because he understands. He's, he, he's asking for perseverance to make it all the way through because he understands how, how weak and how frail his humanity is. That's why you need to grasp that. Because he understood that temptation. Listen, we're in that same state. Our nature is frail and feeble and weak and flaky. That's why Jesus prayed so hard. On the other hand, by God's sovereign decree, listen to me, there never has been and there never will be a true believer who will ultimately be lost. There will never be one that slips from his hand. There will never be one who rejects the salvation of Christ. John 10, no one can snatch you from from the hand of God. Philippians 2, Jesus will complete the salvation that he began. Ephesians 1, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit for eternity. Can go on and on and on. By our nature versus by God's sovereign decree. By our nature, yes, you and I could walk away. By God's sovereign decree, if you truly have the Spirit, if you've truly been enlightened to the Word, you've truly been partakers in the Spirit, then you will not because He promises it. Now, a few questions you might have in mind, and I just want to address them quickly, and then I'm going to hit this from a different angle. First question, what about those who seem to be redeemed, but then walk away? So how do we apply this to those who seem to be redeemed? Maybe you have kids that one day that you thought that they were redeemed, but then now they don't want anything to do with Christ. Listen, there is no possible way that they were ever actually saved. That would mean God is a limp-wristed man like most men in our culture. But God has promised to not lose any of His redeemed. So again, we're talking about someone who has rejected Christ. I don't want anything to do with Him. I'm not talking about the person who's having a bad day and kind of deep in some sin and they need to walk back in repentance. I'm talking about someone who says, I no longer believe Jesus is the Christ. Apostate. There's no possible way that that person was ever actually saved. Now, what about, second question, what about those who seem redeemed, then reject Christ, but return to Christ? We pray for that. Again, there is no possible way they were ever actually redeemed in the first place. God has promised that there is no longer salvation for those who reject Christ after having been saved. So let's imagine someone who professes faith in Christ, got baptized, joined the church, and then rejected Jesus, but then returned to Christ. There is no returning to Christ because that person was never Christ in the first place. 
So they're coming to Christ for the first time truly and really and fully, assuming that that moment is genuine. Third question. So what's the point of the warning if God's decrees can't be thwarted? What's the point of the warning if God's decree can't be thwarted? You need to live with one item in each hand. I know I've used this uh, illustration multiple times today. I'm going to do it again. you got to live with one thing in each hand or two things in both hands at the same time, however you want to think about it. Two, these both things got to be on your person at all time. How about that? <clears throat> one, I must work hard to live out the righteousness that's been given to me or I will fall away. Advance. Take more ground. I'm going to crack open my Bible. On the other hand, I must trust that God will never lose me if indeed I am His. I must trust Him. I'm secure. Let me give you an example. Uh, my friend told me I had to quote him, but he was quoting Spurgeon. Uh, so I'm quoting both of these guys at the same time. <clears throat> He told me that Spurgeon said it and said, but don't give Spurgeon credit, give me credit. So I told him I, I would not do that. If I tell, oh, we were joking for the record. If I tell my kids to stay in the backyard and out of the front yard, lest they run into the road and get hit and die. But I position my chair on the side room or on the porch in such a way that I could guarantee stopping them before they were to make it to the road. In that scenario, does that make my warning any less accurate? Could they still run into that road? Could they still get hit? Would they still die from that car? Yes. That doesn't change that. Are they still going to hear that warning and stay in the backyard if they're not foolish, if they're not prideful and arrogant? If they trust their parents and what they say, if they don't question the goodness of their parents, if they don't listen to the serpent, my warning is still accurate. And I answered this a little bit, but the second question, does that make my warning any less purposeful? Does it lose its purpose? No, again, it will keep them safe in the backyard. It will keep them safe. That's the point of the warning. You really could experience death by unbelief. I know our world says life by believe whatever you want. The Bible says death by unbelief. Stay in the backyard. Move on from milk. Strive. Become teachers. Don't harden your hearts. Exhort one another daily. Don't drift away. That's why you should put the warning on the index card and tape it to your mirror. If I don't strive, there is this fearful chance that I could fall away. And then those moments where you do stumble in unbelief, 
Remember, the Lord is keeping me. And run quickly back to him in repentance and faith. Don't delay. Don't wallow around in it. Don't give it till tomorrow. Don't wait till you understand all of the facts. Don't wait till it all makes perfect sense. Walk towards unrepentance by faith. It's a real warning meant to motivate real striving, meant to motivate real work. Now let me hit this from a different angle. A little more Spurgeon here, I'm paraphrasing. If I were to say to my children, if I did not give you your lunch and your dinner, there is no one else to feed you, and you will die. What then? Do you think my children doubt that I'm going to give them their lunch and their dinner? No. Another example, the chemist tells us, if there were no oxygen mixed with the air, you would die, and so would all the plants and animals around us. Do you suppose that tomorrow there will no longer be any oxygen and we all shall die? Yeah, none of us are walking with that. We don't hear that and walk away from that. What do we learn? What do we learn in those statements? What does this scenario teach the child? That his parents always provide him the food he needs to live. So it's a warning. If I don't do this, you will die. There's no one else to do this for you. If you don't do this, you will die. If I don't do this, you will die. The child should walk away going, oh, but my mom and dad do, and trust them. And the same thing about oxygen. Listen, if God had not masterfully mixed the molecules and the air just right to sustain us, we would die. So when we hear that warning, if the air was not mixed just right, What does the child of God walk away from saying? Well, thank God he has done so. The astronomers tell us if the sun was so many miles closer to the earth, it would scorch us. If the sun were so many miles further away, we would be frozen. Does that mean that the sun will be further away or closer tomorrow and we shall freeze or burn? No. What do we learn? What does that tell us? It's a helpful way of teaching us how grateful we should be that God has placed and that God is keeping the sun precisely where it needs to be to sustain our lives. And so here's the hypothetical. If you don't advance in your faith, you will fall away. You will reject Jesus and there will be no hope of restoration for you. But God promises to finish his work that he began. God promises that no one can snatch you out of his hands. That no one can, re, that you can't even remove yourself. Does that mean the danger of falling away isn't really there? No, it's there. It surely is. Again, by nature, you could lose your salvation. It could render in us, 
This should, rather, should render in us a healthy fear that does what? It doesn't drive us to earn our salvation, but should drive us to dependence on the Lord for salvation. To ask Him to revive our love for Him every day. To to ask Him to keep us in the Word every day. To keep our faith growing and advancing. To help us move on from milk to meat every day. It should spur on our discipline and the beating of the flesh and running the race. We should strive hard. We should put down the darn baby bottle because we look like fools. It was cute for grandpa in front of the children, but it's not cute when adults in the faith do it, but prefer when they should prefer it to stake. We should run the race. We should stop paying for the same real estate over and over and over again. Listen, when you take more ground around the initial house, the inner portion becomes more secure as the estate is built around it. You can't just concern yourself with the elementary principles. You have to keep up the land at the furthest parts of the estate or the estate. That's why we move on from milk. We strive. We advance. So by nature, yes, we could. But by God's sovereign decree, He will never lose one of His children. Did you hear me? By His sovereign decree, if you should fall away, there will be no chance of being restored again. If the soil of your ground should start producing thorns or thistles, listen to me very clearly here. You should pray that the Lord not cease tending to the garden of your soul. God keeps His hands on His children and He shall never take them off. This thought that by His sovereign decree, this this thought should render in God's true children a thankfulness that the Lord shall keep us. That's the parallel to the, the son story, the children story, the chemist story. This thought should render in us a thankfulness that the Lord shall keep us. You should rest your hope in His keeping hand. Listen, as you're working hard, as you're striving hard, that's the, that's the difference between legalism And true faith is as you're working hard, where is your hope resting? It's in His keeping hand. You should be ever grateful that the priest sits on a kingly throne where he has both the sovereign right and authority to keep his and the power to make sure it happens, to carry out his decree. And I will end with this. One of the primary ways that God ensures His sovereign decree happens is by warning you that you could fall away so that the warnings aid in completing God's sovereign plan and keeping you so that the warnings motivate you to strive 
so that you may enter. The, the warnings motivate you to hold fast so that you don't reach your hands out to grab a hold of something else. So the warnings are meant to motivate you to advance, to grow up in the faith, to take the next acre. You see, it's his merciful warning that he uses to motivate you and I so that we would persevere and that his sovereign decree in keeping his children is upheld. Let's pray. Dear Father, I, I know that there are so many things warring against our minds as we come to something like this. There's, there's old belief that needs to be chucked in the garbage and replaced with right belief. There's the world telling us that anything that feels uncomfortable, it just can't be right. There's even a Christian culture around us that tells us that, that anything that, that doesn't feel warm and fuzzy about God is, 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 just can't be right, it can't be in the Bible, that those kind of promises can't be true. That's not just in liberal, progressive churches, but even in, in more doctrinally sound churches, Father. So there's so many things warring against us. Our own flesh that doesn't want things that feel uncomfortable, that feel risky or make me feel uneasy. But Father, if, if we just step back for a moment and let these words sink in, that I must strive, that I must work hard in light of the righteousness that's been given me, that you will indeed, you've promised to keep me. And that part of your keeping me is by working the salvation out within me. Namely, striving to believe, repenting when I am believing wrongly, knowing my Bible, living faithfully in the church, and so on. Father, I pray that your saints, this would sink deep into their souls. And that they would be encouraged and pushed and motivated, even with the aid of fear, to live faithfully today and tomorrow and each day as you keep your decrees and your promise to never let us go. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.